Did you know that you can listen to every single episode of Gangry the Podcast on our website? Just go to gangrythepodcast.com and you can listen to interviews with amazing writers and reporters like Pamela Koloff, David Gran, Janet Reitman, Tom Junot, Eli Saslow, Ben Montgomery, Landa Gregory, and so many more. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. For this episode, I'm going to replay an interview I did with Eli Saslow back in September 2014. Saslow, a reporter for the Washington Post, had just won the Pulitzer Prize for explanatory reporting. We talked about his six-part series on food stamps in post-recession America, which had won the Pulitzer Prize. I've been paying attention to this this continuing rise in, in the food stamp program for a while. Um, and it, it became sort of more and more surprising to me as the economy was getting better, that, that this one in this one place, things were still actually really bad and, and getting worse, um, historically bad. So uh, I spent a lot of time while I was doing other stories, just, just sort of reading up and digging into that. Since joining the podcast, Saslow has continued to write compelling stories that show the big issues facing our country in minute detail. He's written about the opioid epidemic, how the made-up stories get passed around the internet as news, immigration, and more. In June of 2018, he wrote a story about the school resource officer at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, who didn't go into the school to engage the shooter. Saslow's story about a white supremacist turning his back on the movement was ultimately expanded into a book, Rising Out of Hatred, The Awakening of a Former White Nationalist, was published by Penguin Random House in September 2018. The paperback version of that book will be on sale September 3rd of this year. Cecil has won more awards than I can list. He won the Pulitzer Prize in 2014 and was a finalist for that award in 2013, 2016, and 2017. As usual, we've linked to a lot of Saslow's work on our website. You can find that at gangrythepodcast.com. Eli, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited about it. Uh, first off, congratulations on the Pulitzer Prize. Thanks. That's uh, nice, nice of you to say. Probably won't get tired of hearing that for a while, uh, although it still feels a little bit funny. <laughs> I know a lot of, I think, I, at least I I. I I some people I've talked to a lot of people thought that you would win the Pulitzer this year, but a lot of people a lot of people thought it would be for feature writing for your Newtown story. Um, were you surprised at what ultimately ended up winning? Um, you know, I mean, I, I mostly I just felt felt grateful to win uh, for anything. You know, like like any prize, um, there's uh, there's a huge element of of luck and and happenstance involved in any of that stuff. I mean, I. I uh, I feel if if there were two things over the course of the year that were possible to to sort of um, be talked about for something like that, then that's sort of great, and that's uh, that's um, that's the best I could do. And then you know if, if it if it rolled out that one of them one of them won, uh, that was going to be great too, no matter which one it was. Um, so uh, yeah, I feel feel mostly I feel lucky. Can't can't really. Uh, can't really parse which one which one I would have rather won for or anything like that. Um, mostly, I'm just just glad that anybody's paying attention to and recognizing the work. 
Right. This, the food stamp story, the one we're talking about, is um, the one that you won for explanatory reporting. And it looked at um, food stamp usage in kind of a post-recession uh, United States. Um, I, I think one of the things that is so remarkable about that entire series is you take something so complex as you know, food stamps or food assistance in the United States and, and boil it down to six really, really poignant stories um, can you talk a, l- a little bit about maybe how the idea for the series came about what, and, and how you went about figuring out how you were going to tell those stories? Sure. Yeah, thanks for asking about it. So I think what, one thing is, um, going into it, uh, my, my concern about writing about food stamps was, was sort of what you just mentioned, that it's, it's this huge, really complicated thing. Um, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm certainly not an expert in, in economics, uh, and I, I, I sometimes have a tendency to be a little bit intimidated by these really big, meaty topics. Um, and I, I wanted to sort of get over that for myself. Um, and I think one of the lessons in the series for me was that really, like, you can write interesting, compelling narratives about anything, uh, even if even if topics seem complex and if they seem sort of um, difficult to, to, uh, to navigate. If you can break them into manageable ideas, um, where you're sort of probing some new ground, and if you can find compelling characters, good good narrative stories can still be done. And so, you know, really, it started. I I I've been paying attention to this this continuing rise in in the food stamp program for a while, um, and it, it became sort of more and more surprising to me as the economy was getting better that that this one in this one place. Things were still actually really bad and and getting worse, um, historically bad. So uh, I spent a lot of time while I was doing other stories, just just sort of reading up and digging into that, um, and and you know didn't didn't really approach it thinking that it would be a series. And um, sometimes maybe people can do that and it works, uh, but really for me it just started out with I had I had one one or two ideas um, that felt to me a little bit new about the food stamp program. The the first was just. Sort of how how food stamps had had become so big that they really had kind of become an economy unto themselves. And and in a lot of towns, the first of the month was was not just a day that people were waiting for, but that grocery stores and and bankers and everybody was waiting for because you know thirty or forty percent of the town depended on this this influx of money. And and the other idea I had initially was uh, I'd heard about these these sort of recruiters whose whose job was to go around and promote the the program. And, it was sort of a, 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 a slice that felt a little bit new to me, and, and that I didn't I didn't really know very much about, and and also helped to explain the rise in in in, uh, in food stamp spending. So, um, you know, I, I sort of started on those two pieces, and even those two, like when I when you just talk about them as as general ideas, um, I'm always terrified in every story I write of something seeming boring. Like that's my, uh, you know. I, I uh, I'm always asking my my wife like, does this seem boring to you? Like, is this boring? Boring? You know, it's it's like the boring is like the place that narrative is going to die. And so uh, the challenge then was to find uh, people and places that would make those ideas not boring, and and, and that would make them feel essential and immediate, and 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 would make them stories about people's lives and and not just about sort of trends in a program. So, um, how did you? The first story is is, um, is about the the Rhode Island town, where um, one third of all the residents there receive um, uh, food stamps or, or assistance from the federal government. Um, how did you go about 
I'm imagining you set out, you wanted to find a city where it was really high or how did you start there? Yeah. So, uh, it's, you know, reporting in that stage for me of like, um, you know, reporting basically before you get to the place and you're doing the, the in-person on the ground reporting. And I think it's a really underrated part of, of, of reporting for narrative stories because, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it takes a lot of time, but it also can save you so much time because if you, if you go through all the steps to know that you're definitely going to the right place and, you know, you're saving yourself sort of air balls on stories when, when otherwise, if you just rush into something and go, you, you might find out that you're not in the right place. And so what I did in that instance is I probably spent a day or two just really breaking down the data. And, and, and one of the things that eliminated a lot of states and places was that only about seven or eight states still just distribute food stamps on the first of the month. Others have started to spread it out. Uh, so I knew I wanted to go to a place that was still on the first of the month. Then I, I looked at those states and, and different different places where it was really high. And then within those states, places that, where it was really high. Um, and eventually, sort of probably through a lot of phone calls and a lot of looking at that kind of data over the course of about, you know, uh, a week or close to it, um, realized that I wanted to go right about this place, Woonsocket, uh, that was really reflective of, of this trend. And, you know, and then it's it's always like sifting through this funnel where you start out with this really big idea and you, you get like smaller and smaller. So then I started calling around Woonsocket and figuring out where were the neighborhoods uh, where, where this was happening in a really big way on the first? What were the grocery stores that were experiencing this boom in, in really big reflective ways? Um, you know, and, and talk to probably five grocery store, uh, little grocery store merchants about what was happening there on the first of the month. Um, and then finally picked the grocery store in the place to write about this big thing uh, and and set off to, to go to Rhode Island to do it. So you know, it's, it's a huge luxury to have the time to... Uh, to sort of report through the process that way. Um, but I, I think that it, um, it really is uh, some of the most important reporting is, is the reporting that gets you to that, to that place where you can finally, you know, buy an airplane ticket and go. As far as um, a lot of the individuals that you're writing about, especially the people who are on assistance, um, I, I would imagine a lot of these people, they probably don't necessarily want the world to know that they're struggling in life. Um, how do you convince them to a tell their story and b let, kind of let you hang out with them for a little while? Yeah, that's a good that's a good question, and and it's uh, it's it's a really difficult one because the truth is, um, I think you don't want to be doing too much convincing uh, because if if you're if you're really having to work super hard to sell somebody on letting you write about them, um, with with these kind of stories, I'm I'm I might be with people for. A week at a time, and and if it starts out from a place of, of sort of uh, you know um, hesitancy or or uncertainty, then the truth is like there's a pretty good chance that people become more uncertain and that it falls apart as you go. So y- you want to make sure that you're not sort of uh, coercing or, or or working too hard to convince people to be written about. Um, it's not good for them, and, and it's not good for the story. Uh, but I I think what I'm often surprised about is is you know, my, I would think like, 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 like you just said that people would be hesitant to being written about in these tough moments and in these tough circumstances. And the truth is, I think that when you can, uh, when you can convince somebody that you really care and and that that what they're dealing with is, is really important. Um, 
and that it matters. It, it matters not just to them, but but it matters to, to a bigger thing that's happening in the country. And then uh, that's that's actually really empowering for people. Um, and I think that that oftentimes I find um, that I'm really surprised by how willing people are to open up open up their lives uh, when when they think that it's in good hands. And so so really, then the challenge becomes uh, in developing the trust um, that uh, that that I'm there not just to uh, to have this story happen to them, but but to uh, to to go into all the corners of their lives and make sure that I get it right, and and um, that when people read it, uh, they're they're not reading about some stereotype, but they're reading about a person, Jen, whoever it is, um, and and uh, it's it, these are stories that are fair and honest, but but also um, you know people are written about with empathy because if if you don't if as the writer you don't you don't care at all or or you're sort of uh, indifferent toward toward the issues of the people that you're writing about and um, then nobody who's reading is is going to care either i mean you you uh i'm not talking about caring in an advocacy type way but just in a human way uh, you you better feel some of the things you're writing about if you want readers to feel them as well the um the the family that you write about in that first that first story is the ortiz family how did you how did you find them so, so also kind of in the sifting through the funnel, uh, I didn't find them until I was there in, in Woonsocket. Uh, and I started spending a bunch of time at this grocery store and also started going to a lot of the social service agencies in town where um, I knew that people, as they were coming up on the end of the month, they, they would go to these ser- social service agencies and they would go wait in line at like food kitchens. Um, so I actually found Rebecca uh, because she was waiting in line at a food kitchen. Um, and and I, I probably talked with, again, you know, maybe a half dozen or a dozen potential families. Um, but the fact that she and her husband uh, both worked in grocery stores, they had little kids, um, they, were, they, they felt pretty right really quickly. Uh, so then I sort of knew that yeah, you know, a grocery store is not. It's it's just, it's not it's not quite human enough to carry a whole narrative. Um, the 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 grocery store uh, owner Miguel Pichardo was a you know he was he was a good guy. Um, and I enjoyed sort of spending time with him and writing about his store. But but the to 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 sort of do justice to the human effects of the things, I I knew I needed another character on the other side who would be going grocery shopping on the first of the month. Um, so that's that's sort of what brought me to Rebecca. Um, and and they were, uh, you know, after after doing some serious explaining of what I wanted to do and why I wanted to do it, um, they they were they were like people often are, um, you know, courageous and open and and willing to let me come you know, spend a lot of time at their house. And I walked with her husband, Jory, to, to work uh, late at night and, and kind of watched him do his work shift. And, you know, we went, went grocery shopping with her while, while her kids were having a meltdown. I mean, it's, you know, and all of these are things like you, you, you sort of get deeper into people's lives as the days go on. Uh, so the first day, it's always a little bit awkward and you're, you're explaining why you want to be there and why you want to see it. But um, usually by three or four days in, uh, you know, people, people, people have come to trust you and feel comfortable in your presence, and, and that's when you feel like you're actually seeing real things happen. Yeah, the scene in the grocery store when she's getting groceries and her kids are throwing the fits and everything, that might have been the most painful part for me because I have two young kids, and I've been there. Um, but for someone like me, I can just walk away and be like, I'll just go get groceries another day. But for right. somebody in, in their position, that's not an option. 
Right. Yeah. Similarly, uh, I also have two, two little kids and have also been there. Uh, and, and, um, you know, yeah, it's, and that's a, it's a situation where, uh, you know, it's some, sometimes reporting the best stuff is, is those are the most awkward moments of reporting because, um, you, you feel a little bit like, uh, geez, like this is, uh, I, I feel badly that I'm here watching about this and going to write about it. But the truth is, in order to do justice to her situation, like you have to be there in those moments to write about it because you know that's that's when sort of a lot of the parts of this problem manifest and and um, you know it's uh, in order in order to be fair to her, you you want to you want to write about those moments. Um, and luckily, she understood that. Yeah, there's um. I think one thing that you do really well is, uh, and and I think Jim Sheeler talks about this, and when he does ob- when he would do obits, is um, like finding the gray areas and not always presenting people as perfect angels and not showing that you know. Um, and and one of the things that I thought of was when you were listing all the people that that family owed money to, and one of them was a tattoo parlor, and I could just imagine someone saying. Oh, they shouldn't get food stamps if they're spending money on tattoos, but that kind of shows who they are. Sure. Yeah, and I think um, certainly there were emails from people who said they shouldn't be spending money on tattoos. Uh, but you know, life is more complicated than um, if if you only write about poor people as victims, or or if you only write about characters and stories as victims. That's first of all, it's just not it's not correct usually. Um, but it, it's also you're you're uh, again you're sort of not doing justice to them. You're taking all the power away from them, uh, and and. Uh, that's that's not fair. I mean, I think that the 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 thing to do is is not to be in in the best kinds of of narrative, long form, whatever you call it, journalism. Like that, the the best thing to do is not to be reductive and and not to simplify and 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 to write about things with the sort of the complexities and the ambiguities uh, that are true. Because that's um, life is messy sometimes, and and any savvy reader. Uh, can can recognize uh, when when a story is is cleaner than it should be, um, and especially with something like food stamps, I, I think if there if there was a success in that series, it was that it's um, it's not simple. If if these problems were simple, and and if if people on food stamps were only victims, uh, then they would be solved by now. But but the big problems in the country are not that simple, and and so if we're writing about them in ways that are just uh, that are just sort of reducing them to, to simple cliche, then we're not, we're not doing justice to, to the problems in the first place. And so why bother writing about them? Yeah. I think the story that really shows how unsimple the whole thing is, is, is the profile of the congressman um, who was pushing for the legislation to require people to work in order to, to uh, collect food stamps. And then you have that ending of that story where he's, he's in the restaurant and he's, He's got the two glasses holding, um, you know, showing how far apart everybody is uh, and how nothing's going to get done because it's just it's just they're, they're too far apart. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, I, I always whenever anybody sort of asks, like, if I feel hopeful about solutions, uh, you know, it's um, the truth is not really. And mostly because of that that scene. I mean, it's uh, you know, it was a congressman who was. Who was he? He'd spent the last years obsessing over sort of how to solve this food stamp problem, um, and he's uh, this is Representative Sutherland from Florida. He's he's a uh, he sort of is um, like for all the people who are on food stamps, he's sort of a villainous character. Uh, but again, like in 
like anything, once you spend time with somebody and learn about them, he's much more than that. And he's, uh, he's, um, he's empathetic and he's, uh, he's earnest in trying to figure out sort of how to fix this thing. Um, but anyway, he'd, he'd spent a couple of years trying to try and work on this problem. And he was out to dinner with his daughter who was new to DC and didn't really know the divides. And, and, uh, she, she'd heard of this Democrat who had also spent the last several years working to solve food stamps. And she asked her dad, like, you know, have you guys, uh, you know, have you guys talked and, and tried to figure it out? And her dad said that they'd never met, um, which, which floored his daughter, uh, and floored me, uh, just sort of watching this unfold. Um, but it was, it was a great and fortunate scene to be there for because, um, her, her sort of naivete about Washington was actually like the most logical thing ever to, to, to think like, Hey, you're, you're a leader here to fix these problems. This other guy's a leader here to fix these problems. You're the two experts. Why don't you meet about it? And, and to, to Steve Sutherland's credit, uh, after the story came out, he sort of, he read it, he called me and was like, my daughter is totally right. Uh, and, and he, he started having dinner with that, with the Democrat to at least talk about stuff every, every few weeks. Um, so, uh, at least he, he sort of recognized that something was amiss. Right. I mean, that's great. That story, I mean, you start out, I think even you start out not liking him because it seems like what he wants to do is mean-spirited in a way. But the more you read, you realize he wouldn't, he's not that way. And then by the ending, you kind of, you know, he's he's a very likable guy by the ending, despite, you know, at, at least as far if you're depending on your political leanings. Um, he's still a likable figure who you can tell clearly wants to fix something. Right. Thanks. I'm, I'm glad you felt that way. And mostly because like, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's the whole point of, of stories mostly is, is to sort of challenge assumptions of, um, you know, the, the number of people who are, who are like just evil or, or just victims or just anything is like, you know, I, I'm pretty sure there aren't any. So, uh, in, in writing about, about, um, you know, in, in sort of going into every reporting situation, being open to being surprised and knowing that people are multi-layered. Uh, and I think, I think that's the best way to begin sort of, uh, reporting any piece. Yeah. Was there any one story in that series that was more difficult to report, um, emotionally or just more difficult as a reporter to, to find people, um, to get what you felt like you needed to get? Yeah, I mean, they're um, they all had sort of different challenges. One one of the stories uh, was um, set in Texas, uh, and and was about sort of how this one county, uh, which um, is the poorest county in the country, uh, and and has the highest percentage of people on food stamps, is also the most obese. Which is um, at first at first brush, it's a it's a connection that surprises a lot of people, but but it's it's sort of becoming a definitive. Uh, connection in the future of healthcare in the country and everything else. Um, people who are on food stamps uh, tend to buy the cheapest foods, things that are the worst for you. Um, and uh, as a result, uh, they, they suffer all kinds of, you know, uh, obesity and heart disease, you know, all, 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 all diabetes at, at disproportionate levels. So that was a difficult story because I, I was, um, I was looking for, for, characters to write about and I knew I was going to be putting them in a difficult situation. Uh, it's, it's, um, it's a lot to ask of somebody to, to, you know, 
to not only be writing about poverty and, and dealing with food shortages, but also to be writing about, um, you know, their nine-year-old kids who are starting on insulin. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it, so it was difficult to find characters for that story. And, and it, it was, uh, I also was probably more careful than in any of the other stories about trying to um, be really sensitive about how, how I was writing about the issue and portraying them. Um, because particularly in writing about, you know, people's kids who have, um, who have, who are facing health issues as a part of this, uh, that was, that was a challenge. Um, you know, other, other times are challenging just because it, uh, you know, emotionally it, it, sometimes the, the feeling of being a reporter and, and, um, being an observer and not an advocate, uh, while I, I a hundred percent sort of believe in it, uh, it, it can be really difficult. So, so being on a bus in Tennessee and, and, spending 16 hour days with families of kids who, uh, who are waiting for their one meal a day to roll around in a lunch sack. Um, and then like going back to the hotel and having like a quesadilla at the hotel bar, uh, it just, it feels, uh, it feels weird. Um, and it, and, uh, it's, uh, it, it feels lousy, uh, even though it, it's just, you know, our, our job is not to go and in, in and feed people. Um, if they were starving, of course I would, I would, uh, I would help. Um, but, but our, our job is, is to write about it in a way that people can feel what it's like to be hungry and waiting for the one meal so that hopefully people who are paying attention to the problem can help fix it. Um, but it's, uh, it's still, that, that part still always feels a little bit, a little bit unclean. Um, so yeah, I mean, there were, uh, I think the nice part about, um, really any of these longer stories is that, uh, there, there are parts of all of them, mostly parts of the reporting experience of all of them, that, that stick with me long after the story's run uh, and, and sort of, you know, build and change you as the reporter in some ways. And, and all of these were, were certainly that way, too. Well, we're going to take a short break. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk with Eli Saslaw about some of his more recent stories, uh, including uh, some pieces that are now that kind of looking at immigration. This is Gangry the Podcast. Gangri the Podcast is brought to you by the Digital Journalism Program at Fairfield University. The Bachelor of Arts degree in Digital Journalism is a rigorous 12-course program designed to provide students with the skills, knowledge, and experience needed to take part in today's quickly changing media world. The podcast is also brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University. The college grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. To learn more about the Digital Journalism Program and the College of Arts and Sciences, visit www.fairfield.edu. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Tullis. I'm talking with Eli Saslaw, a reporter for the Washington Post, who earlier this year won the Pulitzer Prize for explanatory reporting for a series of stories that looked at food stamps in America. Now he's working on stories that look at immigration, which is becoming one of the biggest issues of the day. Uh, Eli, what made you want to, to write stories about immigration? So, in part, it's, it, it, it's my own... Uh... I'm, I'm really lucky and that I have a job where I can usually, um, you know, I, I write for the national staff and I can sort of write about, <laughs> write about what's happening in the country, but that's so, 
that's so big um, that it's it's a little bit intimidating to go into every story thinking like what's the big thing in the country I want to write about. So one of the lessons I learned with the food stamp stuff um, and some different things before that is that if I if I can can sort of try to find a little bit of a universe to roam in for a while, it's it's much easier to find fresh story ideas and um, to actually at least feel like you're you're sort of developing knowledge in something rather than than wandering from one story to the next. Um, so partly that's why I, I knew I wanted to uh, at least concentrate part of my time on on one topic. Um, and immigration is huge. Like it's. Uh, it, it, it's you, you could spend a whole career writing just about immigration and not come close to doing it justice. Um, but uh, in this particular moment, there there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of places in it that still feel um, fresh and also feel feel sort of essential. Um, mostly that you know the country is still trying to figure out um, how 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 to deal with. 13 plus uh, million families who, who have mixed status. So some of them are legal citizens, uh, some of them aren't. And um, as deportations continue, more and more families are separated by deportation. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a problem that's going to be a, a lasting sort of uh, issue for the country because in a lot of cases, um, you know, we, we have millions of kids here who are legal U.S. citizens but whose parents aren't and whose parents have been deported. Uh, and, you know, those kids then have, have all kinds of issues that they're dealing with. Um, so I, I sort of went in wanting to explore that territory of, of you know, sort of the world of families uh, and particularly kids and, and how, how deportation sort of shake that up. Uh, your most recent story um, is about uh, a deputy in, in uh, one of the poorest counties in Texas who um, – it's essentially working by himself on his shifts. Can you talk a, a little bit about that story? Yeah, sure. So it's you know I think in in any um, in any of these really big topics, it's it's I think for me it's really important to uh, to find things that still feel new. Like if if you, it's easy to to sort of immigration is a problem that's been you know that the country's been trying to solve for a long time and will continue to try to solve probably for a long time. So, so it's easy to just sort of feel like everything's been written and, and nothing is fresh. Um, but, uh, you know, one thing that I've been paying attention to is, is the, the traffic now coming across, uh, the Texas border is really, really high. Um, in part because of, of, uh, there are more people coming from Central America and geographically they come through Texas. Um, they're more likely to come through Texas and also because of the ways the U.S. has changed the, how it guards the border. So anyway, there's there's a lot of focus on on uh, this one part of, of South Texas. Um, and I, I also had, had seen that, uh, you know, in, in one of these counties near the border, um, they're, they're totally broke, mostly because of this problem, because they've they have to pay to bury migrants who are found dead, uh, and um, it sort of has has broken the county's budget, leaving them with only one sheriff on duty at a time. Um, the county's a thousand square miles. Uh, it's one, you know, it's this huge American problem. But but in this county, what they have to solve it is the one sheriff on duty when all these calls come into nine one one to go to go, you know stop people trying to cross or save them or, or detain them or whatever it may be. And so it's a, uh, you know, the, the story both got me to an interesting place um, that I wanted to go get to and write about, but also sort of highlighted this, 
this uh, incredible flaw at this bigger level where, you know, somehow in this place, one guy had been left to deal with this problem. Yeah. How did you, uh, how did you find him? And how did you find, like, how did you narrow in on that, that one county um, and, and I guess figure out that it was that one person doing this job? Right. So I, I gotten interested in, in Brooks County, which is the county because it's the place where, um, I knew that it was where most immigrants died. Uh, you know, in the in the in the hundreds uh, of recovered bodies every year, and and many that aren't recovered. Uh, so I, I'd begun calling around the county, and and at first I thought I was going to do a story about a rancher, um, because uh, some of these ranches they're big ranches, and they might have two hundred people coming across every night. Uh, coming through their property. Um, and I, I was going to write about, uh, I was going to go go stay on one of those ranches and, and write about, you know, a stretch of days on this ranch and in the middle of this place where people are crossing through. Um, but in, in the process of talking to all these different ranchers, they, they often mention that one of the reasons this was so onerous and, and hard on them was because when they had problems, they would call the sheriff's office and there was nobody there to, to pick up the phone uh, there was only this one person who would be on duty, and and they were always behind. And and so, in talking with my editor, we both began to realize like that's that's the way better story. And um, in part because I knew if I was on a ranch, uh, th- these ranches might be you know thousands of acres, and and there are people crossing through, but the the rancher doesn't really see them. He doesn't he doesn't deal with them. He rarely saves them. Uh, but if I could be in the car with the one sheriff on duty. His whole job is dealing with it all the time, and and there would be much more action in the story, and also it would highlight sort of this great greater injustice that this county had been left with one guy to sort of deal with the problem. And so I switched off the rancher story and and decided to write the sheriff story instead. Yeah, I think one of the crazy things in that story too is that the the rancher, some of the ranchers, the big ones, are even hiring their own security firms um, yeah. because they don't really have yeah. a choice. Right, exactly. They don't have a choice, and it's it's uh, you know there are all kinds of in the weeds issues for those ranchers. One is that in in Texas, if your livestock wanders onto a road uh, and and causes an accident, you as the rancher are liable for it. And um, but in this county, there there are millions of dollars of fence damage every year because uh, so many people are running over and, and crossing these fence fences. So the livestock gets out all the time. So so the the ranchers. One of the things they're afraid of is is that uh, you know their livestock can sort of roam wherever and and they're 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 liable for any damage that that that's caused. Uh, so it's I mean it's it's a big real problem. Um, but but again, it's just a way to sort of take 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 these really big things that are happening in the country uh, and and go find the place where they're actually happening and and where they're intimate and real and where they're not abstract issues but they're they're like the defining everyday thing uh, in in these people's lives and and the one other thing that I would I would say just in thinking about how that story changed from um being about a rancher to being about a sheriff is uh it is it is really helpful for me to have really frequent conversations with my editor um, and and it's like one of the best things about my job it's it's not uh we're, we're not just talking about stories once i turn them in um, we're talking about you know ideas as they're forming and and you know i'm i'm checking in with him every few days after i've talked to six ranchers to say hey i'm i'm leaning this way but what do you think about this um it's it works much better for me when it's sort of collaborative from beginning to end in that process um so you know 
whenever there's a way to cultivate an editor who can do that. Uh, and, and it's hard because people in newspapers in particular are really busy um, and timeframes can be short, but, but it's, it pays off so much for the stories when, when they're collaborative from beginning to end. How long have you worked with your, this one editor? Um, six years, five, six years. Uh, so, yeah, and it's been, uh, he's a great, he's a great narrative writer himself and a great editor. Uh, so, um, you know, it, it feels, it, it still feels like there's a chance to get better and learn something new on every story. Uh, and you know, that's the other most important thing. I think like the greatest fear I always have, and I, I think probably most journalists are the same is that, I'll look back on like a story I wrote four years ago and I'll be like, Oh my God, that story was great. How did I do that? Uh, you know, you want to feel like you can look back on stuff you wrote before and sort of see flaws in it and see, see mistakes that you made that you wouldn't make if you were writing it now. And, uh, you want to, you want to feel like you're getting better from one story to the next. Um, and if you're not, then, uh, or at least I should say, if I'm not, that's when I'll begin to get really scared. Right. <laughs> Uh, how much time did you spend with the deputy? You had some uh, some pretty interesting encounters, like uh, the high speed chase and and entering that house. Um, how much time did you spend with him, and what were some of those instances like? Yeah, so I, I was with him for probably um, four days. I think I was in Texas. I mean, so the thing for me is, and and you'll you'll understand it with you know with uh, so we have a three year old and a one year old, um, and I I I do pretty much everything I can to keep my trip short. Um, and, and that's, uh, you know, it's difficult. Um, but one of the ways that I do that is when I'm gone, uh, when I'm there, it's, um, I, I don't, I don't sort of visit people and then leave them or, or, I mean, I just, I was, I was in the car with, with the sheriff that was on duty 20 hours a day. Cause I was terrified that I would miss something if I wasn't in the car. And then when I would go back to my hotel, I, I would try to like go back at, maybe two, two at night and sleep until six and then go get in the car with them again. But I would, I would tell them like, if anything's happening, if, if you hear about a body, whatever, I'll leave my phone on, just call me and, and, uh, I'll come. So, you know, I, I, uh, I, I try, I try to sort of, when I'm there, I try to be as, as, as embedded as I can. Um, and particularly in this story, like, <clears throat> there were things happening all the time. So I, I felt like every time I stepped out of the car, I was going to be, uh, I was going to miss a chase or I was going to miss an opportunity at a great scene. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, it was, um, it was a different kind of uh, reporting trip because it, I, I, I probably rode, you know, 2,500 miles in the car because on patrol during a shift, these guys will drive 500 miles. And um, so that was, I mean, of course, some of that time is slow, uh, but it's also great for reporting because you're there's plenty of time to talk to these guys about about uh, what their lives and their jobs are like. And um, and then there were other times where it was it was the exact opposite of slow, where uh, there were they were in chases and um, and all 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 things like that. So uh, it was it was uh, it was it was a good setup for uh, for a story because there there was um, you know. With 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 narratives, scene is so important, and and feeling like you're actually uh, there for for the moments when some of this stuff is happening is is what what tends to make uh, a good story really really notch up to the next level. Um, and in that in that situation, there was I was sort of guaranteed a lot of scene. Mm-hmm. Is there any other like big national issue that 
you're maybe looking towards um, for the future to start finding ways to dig down and find those personal stories of people who are impacted by it? Yeah, I mean, there there are a lot of them um, and a lot of things that I'm really interested in. Uh, you know, the way that, that student loan debt is sort of transforming like things generationally, uh, which, you know, you know that stuff better than I do at this point, um, just based on, on, on what you do and where you are. Uh, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, I think like for, I, I don't always know what I'll write about next, but I sort of know um, the kind of, of writing that I'll try to do, which is, is to, uh, at least as long as I'm at the post, which I hope is, is a long time. I, I sort of, you know, it's, it's taking these, these big things uh, that happen in DC and these big, big sort of policies that, that can seem distant and abstract and going to write about, uh, you know, actually how they play out and affect people's lives and, and doing it in a way that hopefully um, not only illuminates something, but, but can make a reader feel something, at least in the best stories. Well, Eli, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It was fun. That was an interview I did with Eli Saslow of The Washington Post back in September of 2014. The paperback version of his book, Rising Out of Hatred, The Awakening of a Former White Nationalist, will be available on September 3rd. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at Gangry Podcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by Fairfield University's Digital Journalism Program and the College of Arts and Sciences. Our music comes from Audionautics. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.